0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. I'm your host for today, Ben Horton. And in this episode, two Chatham House experts reflect on different aspects of the UK government's recent integrated review of security, defence, development and foreign policy. The integrated review has been a pretty landmark shift in the UK's foreign policy. It marks a break with previous approaches in some areas, but also a lot of continuity, of course. And it's being seen very much as putting meat on the bone of the global Britain idea. This is the latest in a series of episodes that we've recorded about UK foreign policy this year. If you go back to January, you can listen to an episode with the director of Chatham House, Robin Niblett, talking about his new report, Global Britain, Global Broker. And then also, I think one episode before this one, there's an interview with Philip Stevens from the Financial Times, which is looking more at the history of UK foreign policy in the 20th century. So for this episode, I speak first with Richard Whitman from the Europe Programme about the diplomatic and geopolitical aspects of the Integrated Review and what we can learn for those areas. And then I'm joined by Patricia Lewis, the Director of our International Security Programme, for a look more specifically at the defense and security aspects of the Integrated Review. Hope you enjoy listening. So my first stop on this foray into the integrated review and the key changes that the whole process has kind of revealed about UK foreign policy is a conversation with Richard Whitman. Richard is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Kent, and he's also an associate fellow in the Europe programme at Chatham House. Richard, hope you're well. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. So I think I would like to talk to you today about primarily the first document, the document that came out at the start of last week, which really set out the vision for the integrated review in the round. So not so much focusing on the defence stuff, but on how security, development, foreign policy all kind of interrelates and link together. It's a pretty ambitious document it's 120 pages long there's so much in there and I'm going to begin with a really unfair question Richard so apologies for this but (laughs) I suppose could you maybe just run us through the kind of key shifts that you think the integrated review document makes what primarily is new in this document and what's being signaled as a change in UK foreign policy
1: well, I think what's new in the document first is it it really fleshes out what global Britain means. I mean, you'll recall that since the expression was first used back in twenty sixteen. There's been a lot of begging of the question as to what the implications are for the UK's place in the world. And we've been clearer on the trade policy side, but we haven't been particularly clear on the implications of Brexit for the foreign security and defence policy of the UK. So, I mean, it really provides us with a sort of definitive answer, I think, as to what the UK government's ambitions are for for the near future. So, you know, it answers a big question, I think, is perhaps the first way to approach the document. The second is that it kind of gives us a clear sense of what the government's workings are in terms of how it thinks international relations and the context for UK security unfolds over the next decade. So it goes out to 2030 and says, you know, basically, these are the things that the UK should be worried about. And this is the world that the UK has to address. And all of the analysis there, I think, is is solid and and fairly uncontroversial. But the interesting bit then is, so how's the UK going to respond? And I think for most commentators, the surprising thing is that there is this focus on sustaining what's called sustaining strategic advantage through science and technology. So in many ways, that sort of flips the norm of what we expect on its head, maybe that science and technology is at the service of foreign policy, uh, defence, and so on. But here we've got it kind of front and centre with this ambition for the UK to be a a science and technology power. And that really provides the foundation then for the other bits of what are the so-called strategic framework, which is to be concerned with shaping what the document calls the open international order of the future. And then the implications then for how the UK does security and defence at home as well as overseas And then a big focus on resilience at home and overseas, and I think the latter is really understandable in the context of the pandemic and where we find ourselves. So the document is, on the one hand, this roadmap for the UK post-Brexit, but I think it's also heavily imprinted by where we've been over the last 12 months or so in in dealing with the pandemic.
0: I'm going to be unfair to you now, then, and, and just follow up on what you said at the start of that answer around the clarity that it's given to the global Britain. Headline. So, what do you think global Britain actually means? What have we learned in substantial terms?
1: I think what we've learned is that the government wants to offer the UK up as an active participant in managing and even constructing the sort of international relations of the future. So, both, you know, recognizing that science and technology are driving a lot of changes and not wanting to be just carried along by the tide of that, but also to play a role in sort of managing and shaping the way that impacts on relations between states. And then that feeds into the so-called open international order idea, which is that you know, basically the starting point is that there's a particular view as to what's good for international relations, you know, open societies, defending human rights, and an open global economy rather than, than protectionism. Uh, and then how the UK has to respond to that. And a big element of that response being, you know, if geopolitics, geoeconomics, is all now sort of centered onto the Indo-Pacific. You know, That's where growth is coming from. That's also potentially where you know, major conflict between significant powers might arrive in the future. And then the UK wants to have a bit of a say on that and, and wants to do a bit of a play. And there, all of that being said against you know, what we might call the more traditional concerns, which is the concerns of the neighborhood, the so-called Euro-Atlantic area, and, and what contribution the UK makes there. And how that's balanced against looking elsewhere. In other words, you know, how does Europe fit in? As well as this focus on resilience, which is a way of, of also stirring in concerns with things like climate change, as well as health resilience and so on. So it, you know, it covers a, an awful lot of ground. But I think the package is quite a plausible one as a story about what the UK wants to do. Of course, it's another matter whether it's going to be able to deliver on all of these elements.
0: Yeah, thank you and and we'll come to the deliverability of this later, but I just wondered before we get there if I could ask you also to explain the significance of this so-called tilt to the Indo-Pacific, which was a sort of very prominent theme in the document. It may seem a bit strange for us to be thinking about the UK's activities on literally the other side of the world. So maybe could you outline for us why the Indo-Pacific has become such an area of focus and what it actually means for Britain to be involved
1: in that space? Well, I think the Indo-Pacific tilt is one of the bits of the document that was very well trailed in advance. And when the review itself was published, I think that what was interesting was that it sort of reinforced the expectation that the UK wanted to say more and to do more in the Indo-Pacific. But I think It also, then when we got the document, it provided with a bit of contextualization, because I think a lot of the commentary before was, you know, this is just the UK deciding to focus on the Indo-Pacific as a way of sort of getting away from Europe. And actually what we've ended up with is quite an interesting narrative in the document, which is basically, you know, the UK's future prosperity and, and stability sort of depends on What happens in the Indo-Pacific. And you know, you could decide to step back from that and and not be involved and so on. But you know, the UK is saying basically that we believe that we have a sort of role and a responsibility. It's not going to be the leading role, but we want to to make a contribution. And I think we have to think about this also in a kind of historical context. And often the tilt to Indo-Pacific runs alongside commentary of the UK decision in the, the late 1960s, early 1970s to end basing east of Suez which was seen as a kind of contraction of the UK's global role. So I think we've got two things going on in the document on the one hand you know we've got this this is where the action is going to be therefore we feel that we need to be engaged. but on the other hand I think there's a, a part of the document which is saying you know that older decision and of course just coming before, the UK joined the EU, that older decision to sort of contract and to focus on Europe. We are unwinding that a bit. No, we're not You know, replaying where we were or reconstructing what we had in the past. But what we're signaling is we do now see ourselves as having you know, a sort of wider geopolitical footprint. And so by implication, that end of Suez decision was the wrong decision to make and the UK should have remained much more engaged. And as I say now, doesn't really have the ability to dodge engagement as the UK presents it.
0: Now, it sort of relates to my next question, actually, which is, in this document, what sign did we get about who the key relationships and the key allies are for the UK in pursuit of this vision? Obviously, with this move to sort of reassert British influence in the Indo-Pacific. I mean, I might presuppose that reaching out to nations based in that region. But obviously, there's also still the question of our relationship with Europe, despite leaving the European Union. Obviously, the geographic ties there are clear, and the US. So, so what did the Integrated Review say about who Britain sees its friends are? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I think it's a fascinating question, because... On the one hand, there's a lot of business as usual, which is obviously the relationship with the United States and the US being central. But obviously, that's given a new twist now with the US's own concerns with the Indo-Pacific and how the UK is going to fit with that. But I think also the fact that the document focuses on this idea of a major challenge you know, of, of how we shape the international order of the future, which means that who are the allies for the UK? And, that, and that's not geographically defined that means that it provides a rationale for not just seeking to amplify the UK's you know foreign policy through the European Union which is not there anymore but looking to deepen some partnerships particularly in the Indo-Pacific with countries like Japan and, and more with Australia and more broadly you know the Five Eyes partners but also I think looking to see how some international institutions like the G7 you know, which the UK has the presidency of this year can be enlarged or at least work with like-minded states or what are seen as like-minded states like Australia, uh, South Korea and India in a way that sort of builds a coalition for a particular kind of vision of international order. I think the strangest part of the document to my mind though is the consideration of Europe in that it talks a lot about the Euro-Atlantic area which is in a way a sort of security construction but much less about European Union Europe. And, and, you know, my view is that we've got this sort of exciting or potentially exciting and eye-catching tilt, which focuses on the the Indo-Pacific. But alongside that, you've got a more sort of stilted vision of the UK's relationship with Europe. In a way, it's pulled back from being clear as to how the UK wants to fit into Europe, and particularly how it analyses and how it thinks that Europe is going to look in 2030 and where the UK is going to fit into that.
0: And a further question I wanted to raise on our allies and and our relations with specific states is is obviously the question of China, which is a bit of a minefield, particularly in the media uh, at the moment. And we've seen various government ministers in contortions over precisely how our relationship should play out. Obviously, China being such a significant player in the global economy, and also a key player in, in dealing with problems such as climate change but then also having this uncomfortable record on human rights and I suppose my question is how does the integrated review address the relationship with China and is there a tension that's going to be difficult to resolve between Britain standing up for an open international order based on rules based on human rights and also a close engagement with China?
1: you know i think the document really walks a tightrope on that because on the one hand the impetus for many things in the document is to adapt to china's growing impact on i think as the document says on on many aspects of our lives as it becomes more powerful so you know the analysis is clear you know that china is and will continue to be of significance in the international order and you know how the uk has to adjust itself to that reality And so on the one hand, you know, there's the suggestion that the UK has to think quite hard about so-called China-facing capabilities, which is more on the the defence side, and and to respond to any way in which China is a sort of systemic challenge to security, prosperity and values and all that, and working with allies to see that settled. But also, on the other hand, as you say, there is this agenda to pursue a different kind of relationship with China on issues of trade and investment and in particular, cooperating on tackling a transnational challenge such as climate change. Can a UK-China policy do all of those things at once? In many ways, that's going to be a key test of the way in which this gets implemented, the way in which the UK pursues its foreign security and defence policy in the future. But I think also, it's, in many ways, it's telling about where the UK elite or uh, you know political discourses on China at the moment, you know, recognition that the UK's perspective on China has got more realistic or more realist in the sense that recognizing that China's rise is not entirely benign and, and China, if you like, can't be shaped to the West will. But on the other hand, you know that China is a reality that has to be worked with on almost any issue or major issue within international relations and how you balance that. That's not a UK-specific problem, of course. It's a problem for pretty much all uh, states uh, and all international actors. But I think the UK has this difficult space that it occupies, which on the one hand, you know, UK foreign security policy has often been predominantly made by the security weather of the United States and responded to that. But on the other hand, you know, global Britain is also supposed to indicate that the UK is going to take a different approach on issues including China. So how far is it going to be distinctive? How far is it going to follow just in the in the wake of, of US policy? And I think to me, you know, that's going to be one of the real litmus tests as to whether a global Britain foreign policy is distinctive from a foreign policy that the UK had previously, which is one in which it was very closely aligned with the position of of other EU member states. I'd like to
0: turn now to what some have been presenting as a kind of missing piece of the integrated review jigsaw, which is this question of development. And obviously over the past year, there have been quite significant changes to the UK's approach to this issue with the merging of the Department for International Development and the Foreign Office, and also this temporary cut to the budget for overseas development aid. And I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about the role that development plays in this global Britain vision that's set out in the integrated review. The mentions in the document itself are relatively few and far between. So I just wondered what your take is on that.
1: If you look at the document, you could say, is it really integrated in the sense that, you know, can you see the way in which, you know, foreign policy, development, security and defence are all stitched together to tell a coherent story? If you can see that, it's it's probably been to the cost of sort of subsuming development policy within foreign and security policy objectives. And that does mark a bit of a shift for the UK, I think, where one of the distinctive elements of its international profile was to be you know, a sort of development leader, as the UK would see, and having a very, very distinctive role on development policy issues. So I think there is, it's not so much a relative downgrading as a sort of repositioning on development within the sort of universe of the story that, that Britain tells about its place in the world. And I think, you know, that was flagged up in advance of the integrated review and anticipated, you know, with the merger of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and DFID. But I think it's also, for me, one of the great unknowns as to what the policy impact is going to be of the sort of integrated review as it unfolds. Because having relatively downgraded development policy, or rather, pulled into much more closely into the sort of family of the UK instruments for uh, foreign and security policy. Does that inevitably mean that you ditch the kind of older distinctiveness? Or is it really just a reflection of the fact that the UK has for quite some time not really integrated development policy into an approach towards its its foreign security and defence policy in a way that that maximises national advantage. And of course, that's controversial because I think many people who work on development issues would see that the drivers for the UK to be involved in development issues are quite different from those that might drive security and defence concerns or foreign policy more generally. So it's going to be one of those areas, I think, that's going to be tracked very, very closely to see whether the sort of falling off of, of UK influence. Or conversely, you know whether bringing together you know, the Foreign Office and DFID has actually resulted in you know, a more sophisticated approach to the way in which development policy and and foreign policy are are conjoined. And frankly, the, you know the document's not going to to answer that satisfactorily for most commentators. But I think it's very striking that this is a, not a document of equal parts, if you like, with text equally divided between foreign policy development policy uh, security and defense and it's definitely development that gets squeezed out in terms of uh, attention on the page
0: yes thank you now i just have one more question really which is um, suppose is going to take a little bit of prediction on your part so apologies for this and i won't hold you to it whatever you say but i wanted to ask whether you think that ultimately the vision that has been presented in the integrated review is something that can actually be delivered upon? Is it a statement of intent, a kind of aspirational vision of what we should be doing? Or is it more of a systematic, this is actually how it's going to play out over the next five to 10 years? And I suppose linked to that, what are the challenges or obstacles that the UK might face in actually following through on these ambitions?
1: I think it's a great question because obviously this is a policy, which is one that's intended in many ways to anticipate Challenges that the UK might face over the next decade, but it won't necessarily be the author of what those challenges are or directing those challenges in ways which are to the UK's advantage. In other words, you know, sort of putting them onto terrain that the UK is good at responding to. I think there are three things to my mind which probably will determine whether, you know, the vision can be realised. One, the most obvious one is, is money. You know, will the UK be able to afford all the things that it wants to do, particularly on the defence side, but also you know, is development always going to be the cash cow? And you, you might say that the early indications are yes, there's a kind of reallocating of resources and you know, defence has had a boost and, and development had a cut and, and diplomacy is always the Cinderella. And is there going to be more spent on diplomacy? So the first is money. I think the second is the response of allies. Do they share the same vision? do they view the UK in the way that the UK views itself? And so are they going to respond positively, for example, to the tilt and see ways in which they can work with the UK that are different from how they worked with the UK in the past? And I think the early indications on that, particularly the relationship on Japan, are there are some things happening that hadn't happened previously. And I think the third one for me is the UK really has to sort out its relationship with Europe because the relationship with Europe in many ways, if not determining what the UK can do beyond, it does at least provide a sort of baseline of certainty about the UK's neighbourhood. And, for example, on issues like science and technology, there are obvious areas in which a combined EU and another member state approach is going to be with the way that the UK is going to deliver on a lot of its ambitions in that area. So I think you know the bit that's not in the document, but the bit that's probably going to require the most difficult sort of political and intellectual leap is how does Europe fit into this set of ambitions beyond, you know, the sort of classic NATO-focused Euro-Atlantic security uh, agenda. And that's the most difficult one to predict because, you know, in many ways this document is a sort of reaction against or a prospectus for, you know, kind of post-European or a-European policy, meaning, you know, not having Europe front and centre in the document. Perhaps the irony is that it all comes back to Europe and how Europe fits in uh, if the UK is going to be able to achieve all the things it wants to and the ambition that it sets out. Well I think this has been such a
0: fascinating kind of overview of the key themes that the integrated review comprises but I just wondered as a closing question I wanted to ask you about who you think the intended audiences are for this document and related to that how much of this is about presenting a view of global Britain to the British public? How much of this is intended for a domestic audience? Or conversely, how much of it is really about speaking to our allies around the world to kind of say, Britain is back, we're doing things again?
1: I think the audience for the document is twofold. On the one hand, you know, it's a bit of an instruction manual for Westminster and Whitehall. You know, this is how the government sees the world and these are the priorities. And therefore, government departments have sort of got to get on with it in terms of making all of those objectives realise. But I think the other aspect of the document is fascinating, which is the sort of public diplomacy function of the document. You know, it's a signal to friends and allies. You know, this is the way that the UK sees the world this is the way that they see themselves fit in so you know one of the interesting exercises is to go through and see which countries are name checked and for what purpose but i think also the document raises questions domestically as to how far it's a settled consensus which is a cross party and across the security political diplomatic elite as to whether this view is shared as to britain's place in the world you know the global britain label has been a controversial one in the sense it's been one closely associated with the Conservative Government and the Conservative Party. And does the opposition share that view? I mean, they may share the analysis, but they may not necessarily share the conclusions in terms of how Britain's policy should be focused. And and out to 2030, of course, we could have two or three general elections in which we could have a change of government, change of party of power, change of prime minister, and whether the, the document will end up having that longevity. And I think that's probably the rub, you know, is this the start of a sort of rebuilding of a consensus as to the view as to Britain's place in the world or is it just really a view of the world that captures a particular moment in time just after Brexit where really the settled nature of how those who make foreign security policy is still not yet determined. And therefore, we're going to be arguing about whether this is the right analysis and whether it offers the the right prescription for quite some time to come.
0: Absolutely. Well, we'll hopefully have you back on sort of later in the year or in the years to come to see how this is actually playing out. Richard Whitman, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, so now I'm really delighted to be joined by Patricia Lewis. Patricia's the Research Director for Conflict Science and Transformation at Chatham House, and she's also the Director of our International Security Programme, friend of the pod, of course. Patricia's spoken several times on Undercurrents already, and you should go back and listen to those episodes from our archive. Patricia, thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thanks for having me back, Ben.
0: Well, <laughs> we couldn't not speak to you in this week of weeks for... Oh, is UK, that the only Defense reason? And Security policy. <laughs> oh, I'm just digging <laughs> holes now. I'm going to stop. I thought it would be good in this conversation. We're going to talk a bit more about the security aspects of the integrated review, and I thought it'd be great just to start off with your overall impressions from the security and defence perspective. I suppose of the integrated review document, and and whether you think it is a document that really does integrate all of these different aspects of UK policy.
2: I think it's a pretty good document in that it doesn't only integrate foreign policy, defence and security as it intended to, but it also integrates science and technology policy for the UK as well. And not only for foreign policy and what you might call traditional defence and security, but also for homeland resilience and looking forward to a very different way of thinking about these things in the round. It will require a hell of a lot of funding. And so you know, in this post-pandemic economic environment, the question is on the table as to how we're ever going to afford the ambition that is in this paper.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And we'll definitely come back to the feasibility question afterwards. But I just wondered if you could tell us maybe a bit more about the kind of key themes that are emerging about how the UK government views national security at this time. What are the key threats that They're talking about, and to what extent are they coming up with solutions (laughs) to address those?
2: In terms of the key threats, I think that they're seeing that the world is increasingly turbulent politically and obviously in terms of climate. And I would say that, you know, we have the old enemy, if you like, of Russia that's certainly acting in real life in terms of the invasion in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea the attack in Salisbury using chemical weapon, Novichok, the attack on Navalny, and you know, all of these things very active in real life. And of course, extremely active on the internet in terms of uh, cyber attacks, in terms of cyber espionage and so on. And you know the whole framing of the relationship between Russia and NATO, the United States and, and so on, is, is still there as it was five years ago with some differences. But what's rising up, of course, is an increasing awareness that China is a growing economic power. China is increasing an actor in terms of uh, cyber security. It's increasing an actor in terms of its own science and technology policy and the the enormous strides that they're making in terms of space, in, in terms of missile technology, submarine technology, and so on. And not quite knowing where to place China in the framing of the world So China is a major player. It doesn't have the same view of the world. It doesn't have the same international order view of the world. It likes rules. It just doesn't necessarily like the ones we've got. And so it's it's about how to engage with China, knowing as well that China has really big human rights issues for Western countries, big democracy issues for Western countries. So how to engage with a very large economic and growing economic power, a growing military power, and a growing influence on a large part of the world and what that means for Western democracies, what it means for those countries which aspire to improve human rights records around the world, aspire to development, aspire to peace and stability. What does that mean and, and how to engage China? I think that's, that's sort of an undercurrent throughout the whole of the paper.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in the conversation I just recorded with Richard, we were speaking about this tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, which some are framing as this response to how to deal with China as as you frame it. I wanted to ask whether you think the UK military is actually in a position to be able to contribute to security provision in the Indo-Pacific region. I mean, is is that an aspiration that we're actually in a position to be able to fulfil? Or are we going to need to transform the military over the coming years to be able to make that shift.
2: I think the most important thing to get about the way in which the UK has to think about security and defence is it cannot be on its own. And it hasn't been thinking about doing things on its own for decades. It only works in partnerships, it only works in alliances. And so, you know, all of this arguments about whether or not we could project power, whether we could, you know, fight on so many different fronts. What it really means is, can NATO do that? And what does the UK bring to NATO? And that's really important. You know, if we imagine that somehow the UK has got to be able to do things on war fronts by itself, well, that we couldn't do. And But nobody's intending to do that. No one's intended to do that for a long time. And I think that's the wrong argument. Can we make a contribution in the Indo-Pacific region? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we obviously have, we have long reach aircraft carriers, submarines, and so on that's militarily. Much more importantly, I think, is the new emphasis in the defense command paper on what one might call defense engagement or forward engagement, which is, and and this whole, what's called one HMG, one Her Majesty's Government approach in our embassies abroad, where people are going to be working together, military people, development people, foreign policy people, working together to help countries build capacity cyber capacity military capacity counter terrorism capacity and so on and work up front and that's certainly the uk can do and it has been doing it for quite a while and it's a bit of a ramp up in this new integrated review and defence command paper and it's a good way to use money it's a cost effective way to use money and it's something that the uk can do in certain parts of the world quite effectively
0: now I wanted to come to a subject that's had a lot of the media headlines, I suppose, in the the last week or so, which is the changes to our nuclear strategy and this decision to increase the number of warheads from 180-ish to 260-ish. Could you maybe explain better than I have just done what the changes actually entail? And I mean, what do you think that means for our kind of reputation as a nuclear power?
2: First of all, it's not really 180 to 260. There was a promise to go down from 225 to 180 by the mid-2020s. So that promise has been reneged on. Right. And so really we're going from 225 to 260 as a cap. And then more significantly, I think, is that there's a decision not to reveal so much about the numbers. So They revealed the cap. But they're not going to reveal how many warheads will be put on each missile on each boat. And that is a real departure from policy and goes against what the UK has been calling for at the UN, at the Non-Proliferation Treaty meetings and so on, in terms of more transparency. And that was quite surprising. So I think in terms of what it means for British defence policy and why it was done, I think we're all still trying to unpack that a bit. I don't think it makes a huge difference to Russia, that if it's Russia, as its eventual aim, because, you know, the idea that a boat carrying British nuclear warheads might carry a few more is going to make a huge difference to Moscow's thinking. And as I said before, we would never do anything without our allies in NATO in that realm. So the overwhelming numbers in the United States of of nuclear weapons dominate the picture as far as Russia is concerned. So it's signalling something else. It's signalling, I think, that, yes, there are all these defence cuts, but, you know, we're not cutting on the what they would imagine as the ultimate backstop, our nuclear weapons. So, you know, rest assured they're not being cut while we're cutting tanks or we're cutting troops. Maybe that's part of the signalling. Maybe it's part of the signalling that, They're unsure about the way in which US nuclear weapons policy is going to go. And they want to retain maximum flexibility. I think that's a possibility. I think there are some technical issues associated as well with the nuclear weapons in terms of the storage, the dismantlement and things like that. So they may wish to just put a pause on that. That might be in the mix. I think there's a a mix in terms of you know wanting to separate or create some clear blue water if you like between the conservative party approach to defence and the labour party approach to defence because the labour party is as you know very much criticising the government over troop numbers and it's a very good way for the government to hit back at the labour party over the nuclear issue where labour party is always a bit on the back foot because they have many in their party who would just want to get rid of nuclear weapons immediately if they could I think at the diplomatic level, it's going to cause quite a few problems. We have the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference coming up, supposedly in August, if it's not postponed again. And I think the UK will find it quite difficult. It has created a character for itself in that forum of being the responsible nuclear weapon state, the nuclear weapon state that really is trying to fulfil its obligations under the treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons and this will not help that particular persona. And it it won't help the way in which the UK then has to persuade others that its work can be trusted as well, because, of course, it has said that it would go down to 180 nuclear warheads by the mid-20s, and now it won't. So that won't be good. At the UN as well, connected with all of this, not strictly speaking nuclear, but the UK has been really a significant player in two other forums which is on cybersecurity and on space security and both of those have taken this responsible behavior approach and very much sort of placing an emphasis on transparency on good behavior on accountability on reducing risk on cooperative behavior and so on and I think this will undermine those approaches because it's still the same players it's still the same individual ambassadors and teams that are all working together on this in in Geneva and New York and it will be quite difficult I think um, for the UK at least for a while to explain how this all works together and they will get a lot of pushback from other countries about this. And the ambassador in Geneva, who's really a very good and articulate, is, is going to have a very difficult time explaining and fending this off. It won't be comfortable.
0: Thanks for bringing up the space and cyber issues as well, because I know it's the, those are two areas that get a lot of focus within the International Security Programme at Chatham House. You do a lot of work on these. And I wanted to ask, what your impressions were of how these issues were treated in the integrated review. Were they really substantively sort of dealt with? Was it meaningful what was said? Or to what extent was this, oh, you know, it'll sound cool. We'll get all the buzzwords in. We're going to, you know, have rockets and lasers and Star Wars stuff.
2: No, I think this is real. The UK is definitely uh, one of the leading players uh, in cybersecurity, both on the diplomatic front, technical front, um, at the sort of international defence and security front. There's no doubt about that. And I think that that issue gets paid due attention within the integrated review. And and it's genuine. And there's a lot of meaning in what they're saying. Uh, To describe the UK as a cyber power, it's interesting. And there's a lot of use of the word power throughout in lots of different ways technological power, science power, a soft power, superpower was one phrase. I think there's a lot of sort of references to power. And that, that's a little bit irritating, I think, on anyone reading it. In terms of uh, cyber capacity, cyber ability, yes, the UK is definitely one of the leading countries on that. In terms of space, the UK is way behind many other countries, such as, you know, the US, obviously, and Russia and China, but also France, Italy, India. I think we can look back to decisions made in the early 80s, which removed the UK from the European Space Agency and remained active, but drove those space efforts into building satellites and into academic space, understanding space, science-based space. So going back into space launches and providing a space launch facility in Europe is a real big step forward. We rejoined the European Space Agency some years back, created the UK Space Agency. And I think, you know, remaining in that, still engaged with all of those efforts is really important. And putting more funding into space science is certainly a really good idea in terms of investment for the future there is so much going on in terms of space right now so you know we have all these new players in space countries new countries coming in to put satellites into space we have new private sector putting up lots of different satellites into space we have new capacities for launch coming around we've got new uses for uh, space launchers there's all sorts of talks about things like asteroid mining and so on there's more interest again in the moon we've now have you know more interest again in mars so the issue of space is rising up as we imagined it would if you like the agenda as we come into the middle of the century and i think that the uk is placing itself to be in that mix it has a long way to go, but it's definitely taking those first steps towards becoming a more serious and a space power that needs to be respected. Placing the space launch facility in Scotland, of course, it falls into other issues to do, for example, with the nuclear submarines in Scotland. Is it, you know What would happen if Scotland became independent from the UK? And that would obviously change the game somewhat. The other thing that's in there, which I'm very pleased about, is quantum technologies. Uh, these are technologies that are coming on stream now. There are new quantum sensors that have use, for example, in, in medical diagnosis, looking deep, deep underground, in looking from space, in providing new types of timing signals so we're not so reliant on GPS uh, for all our electronics and so on. There are, of course, new quantum communications capabilities coming on stream perhaps a bit later down the line and of course we've all heard about quantum computing which is probably a bit further down the line but nonetheless shows much promise for an enormous increase in computing capacity and these technologies are transformative they will be equivalent to the transformative power of the internet so the UK is in that mix right now in terms of the science that's been going on and the engineering that's been going on to develop these technologies. And now we're looking at the deployment of them. And I think one of the things that the UK has been doing is looking at how these technologies can be used to do what the UK has not been very good at in the past, and that's about scaling up and actually bringing money in as a result of the deployment of these new technologies and not just the innovation and the invention of them.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it kind of relates to my next question, really, which is coming back to the feasibility, deliverability of the integrated review. I just wondered how you think we should view this document. Is it a statement of intent or is it a sort of systematic program of things that we're definitely going to do, because obviously we're talking here relatively early on in 2021, we're still in the midst of a pandemic and the economic consequences of that crisis are going to be far ranging and and last a very long time. And a lot of the, particularly the technological side of the integrated review that you've just been describing there, it's incredible amounts of investment that you need to actually deliver these things. So Do you think that the UK is going to economically be able to deliver on the ambitions in this document?
2: It is a really good question. So I think a couple of things. One is that the pandemic itself, I think, has revealed how important investment in science and technology is. And if you look at the experience of the UK over the vaccine investment early on in the crisis, and the spread betting that the UK did, which meant that a number of potential vaccines that nobody knew whether they would work or not, in fact, you know, a lot of the money was on that they wouldn't work, but the potential of them, the UK invested in early and earlier than most other countries. And it proved to be a really remarkably good decision. So I think that's had an impact on Whitehall and the thinking. So investment if thought through strategically in a set of technologies, which would include, by the way, and it mentions it in there, the biotech side of things, is actually very cost-effective. Early investment can lead to all sorts of new technologies that will bring back benefit. In the case of the vaccine for COVID-19, bring back benefit very quickly to the country and to many others around the world as well so I think that's been a big lesson that has been taken note of the other thing is of course that it won't just be government investment it has to be private sector investment and so the return and this is really important I think the return on investment has to be well understood and that has to be connected then with the scale up as I talked about and you know bringing the money back so I think it's possible. It's a big agenda, but a lot of it's going on already, let's be honest. It just needs that sort of extra emphasis in terms of scale and understanding of how these things will transform the way we live. So one of the things that the Integrated Review talks a lot about is resilience. And resilience in the critical infrastructure, resilience in home and security. And we would say also resilience is a form of deterrence. You know, if you're a really resilient community, then you're less attractive to would-be attackers because you it won't affect you that much. You'll be able to bounce back. So this idea of a building in resilience, and obviously, you know, it's really been brought home how not doing so is very um foolhardy. So this stitch in time saves nine approach, which is a very grown up way to govern, is all about creating resilience in our critical infrastructure and some of these technologies do that and then there are other things in the integrated review where that has been taken into account like the reservists the increased emphasis on reservists in the army is in part about resilience in the UK and how that will actually work we've yet to see but they're thinking about This, in the much longer term, the preparedness for what's coming down the road. We know that climate change is is going to bring a lot of turbulence. It's going to bring big, extreme weather events. How prepared are we for those? How prepared are we for our interests overseas as well for, for those big events? What other pandemics might be coming? You know, they could be much worse than COVID 19. All of those things people are thinking about and thinking about how to build in resilience now. Which won't cost as much as having to then cope
0: with the disaster later. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I think we're going to leave it there on on that last image of disaster.
2: <laughs> absolutely. Just a little sort of note of caution, of course, mm. is that you know it is ambitious mm. and it probably won't be able to deliver on absolutely everything. And there is an element, I think, of this sort of soft power superpower idea where there is quite a lot of jargon in it. And I think quite a lot of name-checking of things. But I would say it is a government document. And as with all government documents, it is very much about the moment. It is very much about the government of the day. It is obviously a post-Brexit manifesto, I would say, more than anything. And, of course, it will likely be tempered going forward either by realities or by other governments being formed, elected in, and so on. So I think it's really important to have this level of ambition, but we shouldn't get carried away and drink all the Kool-Aid.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And I hope, Patricia, that we'll have you on in the future to get back into how the UK is actually delivering on this ambition and these all these different themes that we've covered. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks, Ben.
0: All right, that's it for this bonus episode. We hope you found it useful. We'll be returning, of course, to these themes around the future of UK foreign policy throughout this year and beyond, hopefully. And we'll be back next week with two different interviews for you. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with Chatham House's research, then simply visit our website, chathamhouse.org, or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back soon. Thanks very much for listening.